0: A cancer diagnosis is scary. What's the right treatment? Does your insurance cover it? Can you afford it? I'm David Himmel. Join me on October 31st for a special branded episode of Pulse Check from our sponsor Pfizer. We'll be talking about innovative cancer treatments that can help improve patients' lives and we'll find out why they remain barriers to access for patients who need treatment the most. Hey Pulse Check listeners, it's Dan Diamond. And we're taping this at the Milken Institute's Future of Health Summit. Multi-day event bringing together policymakers, entrepreneurs, researchers, scientists. My sister, Excuse me. Oh. Dan Diamond from Politico. Hi, hi, I'm, Dan hi. From Politico. I'm Dan Diamond from oh, hi. Politico. Hi. Oh hi. We grabbed a quiet room today, Wednesday, to sit down with Dr. Nancy Knight.
1: All right. <laughs>
0: She's the director of the Division of Global Health Protection at CDC. What that means? Even while you and I were waking up, eating breakfast, watching TV, Dr. Knight and her team are grappling with challenges like an outbreak of monkeypox, half a world away. Parts of Africa are seeing a deadly outbreak of a disease called monkeypox. Whether global threats like HIV. For many people, they're led to
1: believe that the AIDS epidemic is starting to vanish. That isn't the case.
0: Or Ebola. The world is fighting the worst Ebola epidemic in history. CDC and our public health system are in the middle of a fire. or local problems, like a flood...
1: Coast Guard helicopters airlifted patients to safety one by one after they were caught in the rising
0: floodwaters. That's what Dr. Knight's team tackles, and you'll hear my conversation with her about her path, her current challenges, and what she sees in the future. That conversation starts now. Captain Nancy Knight, welcome to Politico Pulse Check.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
0: You are director of the Division of Global Health Protection at CDC.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: What does that mean?
1: That means that essentially we help to protect you, Americans here, and people all around the world from global health threats.
0: Is your division looking at emerging diseases? Is it looking at wildfires in the middle of Africa? Like, define what it means to have a global health threat.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, global health threats are actually quite broad. Um, we focus on outbreaks. That's maybe the first thing that you or your listeners might think of when you think of a health threat, uh, especially a global health threat. And outbreaks are are one of the big things that we do respond to and we help countries to prepare for. Um, but it's not exclusively outbreaks. And um, so, for example, we work on um, humanitarian crises. Uh, We work with countries to deal with those crises that occur from man-made or naturally occurring events, Uh, cyclones, um, hurricanes, mudslides, events that can put the public health system at risk and can put the health of the people at risk.
0: So if you're looking at your... your Dashboard of the things that you're focused on. How much is pure health, like an Ebola outbreak, versus the mudslide that now has caused catastrophic effect?
1: It's it's really a continuum, um, because what what we do in the Division of Global Health Protection is we take a an all hazards approach. So we look at a public health system in the countries that we partner with. And we we work with them and other partners to identify what are the gaps, what are those weaknesses in the public health system, and how do we as CDC um, best fit into the, the ways to address those gaps? So where do we? Where should we best apply our expertise as a partner? As others look at how they might best apply their expertise? So. Since we take more of that systems approach to it, it's, it's the same kind of public health system that you need, whether it's an outbreak of, as you said, Ebola, or whether it's the, the health threats that you need to be aware of that follow a mudslide. Um, I could maybe use a, an example from, um, from my work in West Africa and how some of these systems intersect. So I uh, had worked previously in Nigeria. I spent three and a half years there. And um, then the Ebola outbreak in West Africa happened. I was based in another part of the continent when that hit. And I was asked to come back to Nigeria to help with the Ebola response there. Many people may not remember that Nigeria actually had Ebola during the 2014 outbreak. We mo- mostly think about the countries that were hit really hard. We like think Congo. about Liberia. Yeah, Congo right now. We think about Liberia. We think about Sierra Leone. We think about Guinea. Um, but Nigeria also had an outbreak uh, from an imported case. So we were able to work together, CDC, the Nigerian government, WHO, UNICEF, Medicine on Frontiers, all of the partners were able to work together by using that systems approach. We had emergency operations center, and we all worked out of that emergency operations center. We had investments that had been made previously in that through polio, so that expertise came Uh, from the northern part of the country on how to operate an EOC, an emergency operation center, and it was applied to the Ebola outbreak. We had previously invested in building the capacity for disease detectives. Who are the people who need to investigate?
0: And have to trace who's come in contact with the Ebola patient.
1: Exactly. That program in Nigeria started um, through our collaboration with the Ministry of Health back in 2007.
0: Something I've always wondered about disease detectives what sorts of skills do you have to have to be a disease detective? Is it like being a normal detective? You're just a specialist <laughs> in healthcare?
1: That's a great question. So um, we, we train disease detectives at different levels. So just like here in the United States, we have a national level at CDC, for example, in public health. We have state level. We have local level at a county or at a city. Uh, the same is true overseas. Um, so in Nigeria, there's a national level, there are states, and then there's local level. And we train for this epidemiology capacity in different ways for those different levels. For the people who are working at a national level, many of them have backgrounds as laboratory scientists, as physicians, um, as nurses, and because they are running and managing these national programs, they're trained for a longer period of time. Typically, our program is two years for the next level. Um, you don't necessarily have as many people with those higher degrees, maybe some other um, interest within the health professions. And we typically train at that level for to be a disease detective for nine months. And then at more of the district level, so that closer to the community level, we will often have um, individuals who have a training that's not not like a full-fledged nurse but maybe more like a nurse's aide um, and uh, maybe a community health worker so we will train people at that level for just a few months so that they have enough skills to detect there's something wrong I need to tell somebody there's something wrong and then at the higher levels the individuals that have more training can come in and help them to ask the right questions, to determine exactly what's wrong.
0: You are in a role where you're thinking constantly about the health threats around the world. Did you ever expect you would be doing a job like this?
1: Actually, no, <laughs> I did not.
0: So how did it happen?
1: My interest in, in medicine goes back to when I was a kid. I've always wanted to be a doctor. Um, and you're a family physician now? I'm a family physician, yes. And I didn't really know back then what kind of doctor I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I knew I wanted to be able to help people. Fast forward a little bit, and um, I went to college, and I decided I wanted to do Peace Corps before going on to medical school. That really gave me the interest in working in the global arena and being able to figure out what, how could I apply uh, my interest in medicine and my interest in the international global arena together, you know, in my, in my career. Um, in Peace Corps, I was a science teacher. I didn't have any medical background And at that where time. were you
0: assigned in the Peace Corps?
1: I was in Lesotho. I was in a small village in Lesotho in southern Africa. And this was really in the early stages of HIV. There was, there was no testing for HIV in the country at that time. I was living in a small village. and um, Were
0: people even aware of what HIV was and the risks?
1: People had heard of HIV back then, uh, some of them, not all of them. Uh, but the people who had heard of HIV, most of them didn't really believe in it. They thought it was something that was made up.
0: And we're talking 1980s, 1990s? 1990.
1: I was there from 1990 to 1992.
0: So even even 30 years ago, less than 30 years ago, people thought HIV was manufactured. Mm-hmm. Totally
1: fake. Right. So I really realized that the need for understanding at a community level what, what people need uh, even when it comes to information. So I had really been thinking about what people need in terms of health care, which is a really important aspect of, of keeping people healthy. Uh, but I also realized what people need in terms of information to, to protect themselves and to prevent disease. And that hadn't really been something that I thought as much about prior to that.
0: So that was your exposure to global health, at least through the lens that you were experiencing in in Southern Africa. But you went into local health in the United States. You worked in the Cincinnati Health Department, for instance.
1: I did, yes. Um, And I did that actually as a federal employee, as a uniformed service member. Um, I was assigned to work in the city of Cincinnati as a primary care provider. So I worked in one of the underserved clinics um, in, in the inner city. And so my primary job was providing services to my community members um, in the clinic there. Um, secondarily though, I because I had this interest in, in the public health aspects of health, I was also involved in the city's planning, the, the city health department specifically, they're planning for disaster preparedness. And I got to be involved not only in the city health department's planning, um, but as a member of that team in the health department to interact with all of the other uh, core components of disaster response from the city and from the surrounding uh, counties and the tri-state region.
0: One thing I've always wondered about is how applicable is local health delivery to the global health challenges that you're wrestling with now. Is this truly just scaling up the same strategies and tactics? Or does a completely different lens need to be applied when thinking about sub-Saharan Africa versus Cincinnati and its downtown health issues?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, Certainly, there are many of the same challenges that we grapple with at a local level. And at a national level and at a multilateral level, um, we grapple with things like access, uh, access to care, access to public health services, access to health care services. We grapple with things like communication, um, whether it's in a disaster setting, uh, an emergency outbreak response setting, or in um, routine, uh, routine public health, routine public health care setting. Um, so we we do grapple with a lot of the same challenges, and certainly because you're addressing some of the health specific challenges, like disease specific challenges, um, we you can take some of the proven effective interventions from one setting and apply them or test them out in another setting. We we did that with HIV. Uh, quite a bit. We would look at um, interventions, prevention interventions that CDC had used with local communities, um, local NGOs here in the United States, and ones that had been proven effective, and we would take those and we would apply them to uh, communities, our community engagement work overseas. We would adapt them. So that's why it's, Yes and no, because you can take those interventions, but you do need to adapt them to the local environment, whether it's another country or a different community in the same country.
0: We'll get back to my conversation with Captain Nancy Knight in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. What's at stake is everything, everything that we hope for. I'm David Himmel. Advancements in science and technology are paving the way for some remarkable cancer treatments that can make a huge difference for patients. And yet, many people don't have access to them. David, healthcare is absolutely a team sport. Everyone needs to come together. All the stakeholders, the biopharmaceutical companies, the health plans and payer organizations, physicians, the integrative delivery networks, and the patients and patient organizations. We have to work together to find better creative solutions. Join me for a conversation with two healthcare leaders working to provide cancer patients with effective and affordable innovative treatments. The conversation takes place in a special branded episode of Pulse Check from our sponsor, Pfizer. Listen in on October 31st, right here or wherever you get your podcasts. Given that you've worked both in public health in the States as well as global health abroad, what do you know about how the U.S. system succeeds or fails? Because you've got a window into how other systems around the world work.
1: I think I'd like to talk about that still along the realm of the public health systems and the ability for those systems to, um, to surge and to respond when there's an outbreak or a public health threat. So in my current capacity, we, we focus on the international health regulations which are those commitments that the United States and countries around the world signed on to after the SARS outbreak, that we realized we had gaps globally in the public health systems that we were not prepared to be able to respond. And
0: what are some of those commitments for listeners who might not know?
1: So some of those commitments are around these core public health systems. Do you have surveillance systems in place? Are those surveillance systems able to address um, human population as well as, for example, zoonotic diseases, uh, animal population, animal health? Um,
0: These are the diseases that move from the animal, from from the farm to humans.
1: That's right. That's right. Um, The capacities in laboratory diagnostics. So does a country have the ability to diagnose those specific diseases that are highest threat within the country? Does a country have the ability to detect new diseases as they might show up within the country or within the communities? So from that perspective of international health regulations— I've been able to really to learn through a standardized approach that we use and apply not only to the United States, but also to other countries. And that's called the Joint External Evaluation. This is a tool where experts from around the world will come together. They'll go to a country, not unannounced, it's scheduled. You'll go to a country and it's a formalized assessment of these different systems within the country, and then they'll give that country feedback. And that feedback is comes out through scores as well as a lot of recommendations. So the United States has had a joint external evaluation done. We got our feedback. Our, my domestic counterparts in CDC and in other agencies developed the plan, the action plan, to address the gaps that we're seeing in the United States. Just as I work with other countries and send experts to do their external evaluations. And based on that feedback, we work with countries to determine what are the out of all of the, the gaps that are seen, which ones should we prioritize for what reason? And that's, those are the ones that we, we work on together.
0: The United States hasn't pulled back from any of those commitments, though, in, in this new administration that has been rethinking various commitments and treaties around the world. Or has it?
1: The international health regulations. The United States is still a full signatory to the international health regulations. Um, the that's part of our global health security portfolio, um, and the administration, as well as both sides of Congress, have been quite supportive of global health security. We have we have had bipartisan support.
0: So I have a, a two-part question. First, I'd love an update on the severity of the Ebola outbreak in the Congo. How bad is it? Some of the stories about it have just slipped off the headlines, especially here in D.C. We've been focused on other things. Clearly, I'm talking about the Washington Nationals in the World Series. But then once we talk about the outbreak, I'd just be curious about the global response and what's needed to fight the Ebola outbreak.
1: The Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo is still ongoing. Um, we have more than 3000 cases with more than 2000 deaths. I will say that the case uh, the the number of new cases that are being reported on a daily basis have been decreasing, which could be a good sign. But we do have to keep our eyes on it very closely. The the case counts about not quite a year ago were decreasing because the transmission was not being detected. That's been a big problem in this Ebola outbreak, that new cases were being identified without being a known contact. So that told us that transmission was happening at the community level that that wasn't being detected. So we have to keep a close eye on it and make sure that If we have decreasing case counts, are those decreasing case counts real and reflective of the outbreak getting under control? Or are those uh, decreasing case counts reflective of chains of transmission that we just haven't quite found yet? We haven't let up on our response to this outbreak. CDC has staff that are deployed for the Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Kinshasa, in Goma, in the surrounding countries that need to have, have our assistance with their preparedness efforts, such as Rwanda, Uganda, and South Sudan. And it's through having those staff on the ground that we are able to, to give our best effort to this collective response with the Ministry of Health with WHO, with the other partners that are on the ground.
0: Beyond Ebola, what are the other epidemics, diseases that are most troubling to you in your role at CDC?
1: The other epidemics or diseases that are are most troubling, and, and I'll say not just to me, but I think for, for us um, as CDC, and I know I've heard Dr. Redfield Uh, talk about this many times. Dr.
0: Redfield, the CDC director?
1: Yes, that's right. Um, Influenza. Influenza is something that has proven in the past that it has pandemic potential, and it still has pandemic potential. So we should all be worried about influenza.
0: You've gotten your flu shot this year?
1: I got my flu shot at CDC through one of our health clinics.
0: When did you get your flu shot?
1: Uh, I got it a couple of weeks ago, the CDC. So
0: early October?
1: Yes, yes, early October. So
0: influenza Influenza. Being one issue.
1: Mm-hmm. That's something that we should always be vigilant for, all of us, um, and get your flu shot. The, the other thing that we, we worry about is antimicrobial resistance. And again, this is something Dr. Redfield has talked about. Antimicrobial resistance is a growing problem. And while you or your listeners may be scratching their heads to think about, have I ever known anybody that's, you know, gotten sick and it's been from an antimicrobial resistant bug, a virus or a bacteria?
0: To put it another way, these are the antibiotic resistant diseases that have spread.
1: Yes, that's right. So there are bacteria, there are viruses, um, there are fungi that have developed resistance to the ba- the um, antimicrobials, the drugs that we would typically use to treat them. And this is a growing problem. So we should worry about it now because it is a problem now, but it will be a larger problem in the future. Well,
0: when you say we should worry about it now, I feel like I've read stories like... Hospital in India has outbreak of AMR, uh, antimicrobial-resistant bug, um, but it's hard for me to quantify how big a problem this is. So is this something where you're looking across the globe and you're seeing a thousand different cases every day of something um, that's antibiotic-resistant? Or, or is this, you know it's a problem and we just need to get ahead of it, but don't really have a sense for the sheer number of, of problems it's presenting?
1: That's one of the reasons why we do surveillance for antimicrobial resistance. So, in in CDC, um, as I as I mentioned earlier, we um, focus on the health systems, and those health systems we want to build them in a way, uh, or help strengthen them in a way that can help us to detect a variety of different pathogens, um, and. And so with, within CDC, we have a lot of expertise across our agency. I think that's one of the things that, um, it, to me, is really exciting about working in CDC is that we have experts like those in my division who focus on these broad health systems for an all-hazard type of capacity and we have experts who focus in on the specific diseases the specific specific pathogens that sit in some of our other centers across the agency so with antimicrobial resistance within CDC we have this partnership of The experts um, in these different countries um, where we are working, experts in the public health systems at that country level, and these antimicrobial experts that sit in our National Center for Emerging Infectious Diseases. Um, So it's a true partnership across the experts within the agency that allows us to to be able to bring to bear... that full spectrum of expertise that we have to be able to um, put surveillance systems in place, to be able to then, once we know what some of those um, pathogens are that might have resistance, work with the countries on what kind of guidelines do they need to change in their prescribing practices or their utilization practices, what sort of regulations do they need to change.
0: Bringing this full circle in, in your career, We talked about HIV, and 30 years ago, wasn't fully understood the risks of HIV. Now we're at a moment where there is talk of trying to end HIV transmission within the next decade. It's gotten a lot of attention domestically because the Trump administration is pushing a plan to end Mm -hmm. transmission. But globally, there's been talk of this for for a while, that by 2030 could end uh, transmission of the disease. Is that really true? Is that really possible?
1: Even without a vaccine or a cure right now, we have all the tools in our toolbox that can help us to get the HIV epidemic under control. So when I talk about tools in the toolbox, I'm talking about some of the the specific programs that that I used to work with um, and that my colleagues that are working in the HIV space continue to work with. So for example, in... The HIV epidemic, particularly in Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, young women and girls are at greatest risk. That's where we see the majority or the most significant um, number of of new infections. So we have programs to, to help those young women and girls to really empower them to be able to make the decisions to protect themselves. We... Also have data that, that if you are if you're diagnosed with HIV and you're on treatment and you're taking your treatment effectively so that your viral load is undetected, that you, you will not be able to transmit that to transmit the HIV virus to your partner. So we call it U equals U. If you're undetectable, it's untransmittable. And so that's another tool in our toolbox, really using HIV treatment as part of our prevention portfolio. And then another important tool in our toolbox is the data that we are able to gather through HIV um, population-based HIV impact assessment studies, which CDC helps to lead in in partnership with, um, with countries and other partners. And that really helps us to... Uh, to zone in on, within a given country, what does their HIV epidemic really look like, so that we can take the tools in our toolbox and apply them in a much more finessed approach, um, working with the specific populations with the right tools that they need.
0: Last question. You have a prominent position in the global health fight. For a listener who's hearing you talk about your career, your, your responsibilities, what advice would you give that person on how to get a similar job, not immediately, but 10, 15 years down the road? Is it go volunteer for the Peace Corps and then follow every step of the process and work for the Cincinnati government? Is it go straight into the public health service? Some other path? What would you recommend?
1: There's so many different paths that people can take and that I've met in my career. Um, many people who have taken so many different paths to get to, um, to work either at a local level or like me at a national level um, or sitting and working in another country. Um, certainly for me, Peace Corps was the right way to go. Um, my experience working at a local health department, I think, has, has really given me a lot of things that I can now apply at a national level, and I, I've truly valued that experience, Within CDC, we offer a variety of other of of fellowships and programs that people can access, can apply to. One that is um, is perhaps one of the best, well known, is called the Epidemic Intelligence Service, or EIS. That's our disease detectives that we train here at CDC headquarters um, in Atlanta, and through placing them with state health departments um, and and with other um, other public health departments around the country.
0: Well, Captain Nancy Knight, we appreciate you taking a step away from global health response to talk to us on Politico Pulse Check.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate you having me.
0: That's it for this episode of Politico Pulse Check. My thanks to Dr. Nancy Knight, Shabatai Sinichi, and everyone else at CDC who made the conversation possible on that end, and Jeff Baum and the Milken Institute for finding space and time to record the show. Annie Reese produced this episode. Dave Shaw is executive producer. You can find me at ddiamondpolitico.com with suggestions and tips. Thanks for listening.